Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done, and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came, humanoids from the deep dive welcome to the podcast humanoids the deep dive where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies each episode we'll see guests co-hosts and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore today we are talking about I mean, we're we're a monster show, and so the the filmmaker and the film that we are going to cover today is one of our very favorites uh, for, for everyone here. Uh, we we are going to discuss one of the best monster movies of all time, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> Some of these, it, you know, I, I've had comments uh, from folks before when it takes us a while to get to, to a film like this, that I really love. That's one of my absolute favorites. And, uh, people will ask me, well, why did it take you so long to do pants labyrinth or, or we're going to have a werewolf one in the pipeline pretty soon. Why did it take you so long to do that? It's your favorite beastie. Uh, I didn't want to set myself up for this show with getting all the things I love most out of the way and then having nothing to do, you know? Uh, so i'm like okay we have to wait till the time is right to do pan's labyrinth and folks the time is perfect it's also mostly imposter syndrome too (laughs) yeah you got to get a lot of that out of the way where you're just like oh man i got can i cover that we can cover that i think we do that like yeah i mean it could be pasta syndrome too where you just want pasta (laughs) the great spaghetti monster in the sky uh the anti-pasta syndrome oh (laughs) You know what's funny? If you add antipasta to pasta, it doesn't explode, and I would expect it to. It just starts floating above your plate, which actually just makes it harder to eat, but it's still <laughs> like pretty good. And also, that's the only way you can have pasta on the keto diet. Um, ah, I just missed it out. It just like exceeded my grasp. <laughs> um, food humor, folks. Sign in for a monster podcast on one of the greatest monster movies of all time. Stay for the food jokes. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the the food humor might actually carry through our um, discussion, <laughs> given the monsters that uh-huh. uh, reside in Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, it's actually completely perfect for if you're not familiar with the film, uh, you should check it out. But but you'll find out why in a minute. Uh, uh, today, uh, I, I'm incredibly pleased to to record yet again with. Uh, two of our illustrious co-hosts, uh, Mike Vaughn. Say hi to the peoples. Hi, peoples. What's up? And Andre Couture. Uh, yeah, that's me. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something clever, but my brain just like emptied out. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, to you know, to the uh, folks at home, we were going to record this at a different time, and uh, these gentlemen were kind enough and thoughtful enough to like pivot on the fly. On a dime. So um, here we are, and we're going to navigate this twisty fantasy territory together. Uh, but thank you both, and thank you folks at home for, for tuning in. 
So Pan's Labyrinth is interesting to me because uh, I love Guillermo del Toro's films. I think we're destined to become best friends. I just think his stuff is so magical and cool and otherworldly. And I really can't think of one of his films that I don't like. Like there's even things I like about Mimic. And that's one that had a lot of studio interference. And he's not that big a fan. I still have things I like about it. But I think for me, uh, one the, the the Del Toro film that I think just hits it out of the park and then hits it again so completely successfully, and I know a lot of folks feel this way, is Pan's Labyrinth. It's political, it's magical, it's multifaceted. Uh, it's, it's definitely one of the coolest cinematic experiences that I've had. Uh, what, what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think that it is kind of the perfect um, sort of melding of um, like a harsh reality uh, with a whimsical kind of fantasy. There's a lot of films before and after that has um, aimed for this, but I feel like Del Toro's film is the one that really captures it, I think, in the most authentic, all-encompassing way. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like just the right amount of peanut butter, just the right amount of jelly, just the right amount of pasta, <laughs> the exact amount of anti-pasta <laughs> to balance it out. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think that's perfect and completely true. I stand behind it. Um, so for the folks at home, uh, Pan's Labyrinth was uh, Del Toro's you know, kind of spiritual follow-up to Devil's Backbone. They both deal with the, the Spanish Civil War and, and the struggle against the fascists, but using um, more supernatural or otherworldly aspects to kind of um, meld with some of those real-world wars. And uh, so it's not a sequel, but it's like a spiritual mm -hmm. sibling. Yeah. So the film takes place in 1944 in Spain, and it follows uh, a young girl, Ophelia, who has a very lovely but ailing mother that happens to be um, betrothed to a, a fascistic army officer who's just, I mean, he's a fascist. He's human garbage. What are you going to do? Um, but he's trying to, to thwart a local guerrilla uprising. And uh, Ophelia has to both navigate, you know, her mother's sickness and his um, desire for new progeny and his this and that, the other thing, just general evilness. Meanwhile, uh, she comes to explore this old maze and encounters a, a fawn named Pan who um, tells her that she's this... Uh, that this world is not the real world, and she is actually a legendary princess that has been reborn in our world and needs to come back to her world. And to do so, uh, she has to complete three very dangerous otherworldly tasks. And it follows both her real-world harrowing difficulties alongside this more fantastical journey and then it ends on a really like poignant, mysterious note. And it's just a lovely marriage of the political and the fantastical and a and a wonderfully constructed parallel plot. It's just brilliant, honestly. So as always, I, I 
would like to start out because we have a particular film that we're orienting around and we're going to talk about some of the the creatures within i want to start with reviews so which one of you fine gentlemen would like to go first um i'll say andre andre how about you alphabetical let's go alphabetical i I think this was my probably my first exposure to guillermo del toro's uh, filmography um, after hearing about Kronos, but not knowing where to find it. Mm. And this was before any of his stuff was available through Criterion. And I, I think this was a lot of people's like first Guillermo del Toro movie, or at least conscious uh, watching of a del Toro film. It really is like that the perfect balance, uh, like Mike was saying, um, between like this fantastical world that has always existed alongside our, our own reality and one offering a respite for the other uh, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Those who believe in it will inhabit that space, but those indifferent or not um, believing in that aspect of thought will never be able to access it, I think is the the key to um, really being able to identify with this. Mm-hmm especially since del toro is someone who's really identified with like fantasy stories Mm -hmm. fairy tale stories brothers Grimm, everything that that uh, comes out of that and i think that is so many people out there that also have this um this attachment to these Mm -hmm. stories so even if this isn't uh, a direct adaptation of a specific story you can tell that it's um it's inspired by this uh, insane like amalgamation of different stories where it's really just like a simple premise that has like these very basic elements that one combined together. I mean, it's, it's a very provocative combination. It's not difficult to find yourself in the story, no matter who you are. And I think from there, it's fair to say that this is likely a five-star movie for me just because it's so malleable it fits so many different narratives. This could easily have been set in uh, Japan during World War II. Mm-hmm. This could have been set during the Japanese internment in the United States. This could have been set in like, I don't know, the Ottoman Empire Wars, Armenian Genocide. Like, like everything about this is so malleable and applies to so many different like avenues of, of human like inspiration and suffering. Uh, it just has a, a really, really great dichotomy uh, that it presents. And I think it's it's one of the films that just continues to uh, just get better and better. Absolutely. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we'll get to, to my thoughts in a second. But um, I mean, I, I think you're spot on and that's really insightful. And, and thanks so much. Mike, what about you, good sir? I would also say that it's a five-star movie for me. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think what I can add. I, it's it's very timeless. Um, and as Andre was saying, it's very sort of malleable for really anything as far as the, you know, human suffering and how, you know, we escape that with fantasy. Um there's almost sort of like a um, meta commentary on film, like watching films um, as an escape um, of like horrors of every day. Um, So, yeah, I I think that um, it's 
so incredibly well made, well shot, uh, well directed, acted. Um, it's one of those movies that there is not a single um, like bad element uh, to be had. I mean, everything works so um, mm-hmm. harmoniously. Um, and you don't really get a lot of movies that like hit every single beat um, story-wise, tone, uh, theme, uh, imagery, um, you know, uh, efficient story. Just everything is is working so well together. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's yeah, like I said, it's it's incredibly rare to have like a movie that like is just firing on all cylinders. I wouldn't, I, I don't know if there's like a single um, sloppy element to be had. It's, it's nearly perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with both of you so much. Uh, again, what, what can I add? Uh, I think Mike, you're, you're also spot on to, to talk about the actual, like, script being so so well constructed because it's really hard to balance a parallel plot you know in a way that doesn't shortchange one aspect to the other but they're so wonderfully woven together and the what what uh, ophelia is going through in the more fantastical realm and its struggles is so well reflected in what's going on in the real world in the the our world put it that way um with uh real world evils and then it's so well they so wonderfully weave together um and i guess the only thing that i would add because everything about it just works the creature design is fantastic uh it it draws from mythology but adapts its own and then it also has original creations like the pale man which is one of the the things we'll focus on today um shout out to doug jones we're gonna get you on the show because you're amazing uh, <laughs> it's just gonna occur i'm gonna try real hard this year um it just does so many things and it does them all so well and the the two things that i like so much about del toro's filmography are one obviously monsters the man gets monsters he gets the meanings and the multifaceted richness of them better than anybody uh and they're part of his dna like they're part of mine like they're part of everyone on the shows and and so that's wonderful but then also his his films he has an uncanny ability to build worlds that feel like working magic, you know, that feel larger than life and rich and fantastical. And that's a really hard energy to portray. And he's successful time and again, but this is one of his films that best captures. I think this feeling that you are literally seeing a window into something more mystical and magical and larger than life. And it's just a great experience, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it's almost kind of like we had this really cool cycle in the seventies and most, and more prominently in the eighties of like these high fantasy movies. Mm -hmm. Um, 
like Legend and The Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. And like, I kind of see this as like a very polished sort of extension of those films. Um, Mm -hmm. Like take those, like that whole kind of like genre um, that was very popular in those decades but then just like give it a really amazing director, a budget, um, you know, that can sustain mm-hmm. it um, visually and thematically. And, you know, it, I definitely yeah. feel like it fits kind of with, with those um, cycle of movies. Uh, from it that really does. It really does. And, and one of the things that I, I also like about it kind of connecting to that is a lot of those films, uh, you know, some people think that like fantasy films like high fantasy stuff are not very applicable to real world struggles right but in many cases you at least have vaguely you know a vaguely totalitarian enemy and people banding together against all odds to fight them um even though it's in a fantasy world so there are political parallels to most good high fantasy things however I love the specificity of of the parallels that he's making to Francoist fascism and um, like it's really specific real world evils that that are being dealt with. And I think that's such a cool project because that is less common. Yeah, I guess in the sense, the evil of Pan's Labyrinth exists more um, solidly in the real world than it does mm. the fantasy world mm-hmm. because Ophelia is approached by the fawn and is told that she's a member of royalty, right? Mm-hmm. So she has to perform these three different acts, but that's for her to gain access to the court that she's mm-hmm. um, indebted to by all rights. Yeah. Yeah. And, and who's looking for her. So there isn't, you're right. There's not a mm-hmm. clean paralleled master villain in the in the 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 other world um but there are individual it's like a series of challenges and each one has its own and uh, you know antagonistic forces to contend with i mean if anything the main villain of the story kind of permeates both worlds and Mm -hmm. it's not explicitly there but the three challenges especially leading up from the toad king to like the pale man are almost like different barons or I don't know why the Italian mafia just popped in my head as a reference point, but you know, like capos or like different, uh, like underbosses or henchmen mm-hmm. underlings. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Like they're not, ex- they're not directly related to this guy and he probably doesn't even know that they exist, but his purity and evil has sort of facilitated the existence at least, or the power that they wield that necessitates the need for Ophelia to neutralize them or mm-hmm. uh, I guess disarm or placate them. Yeah. Cause these evils are in, in, in sort of both parallel worlds. It doesn't really like belabor this in an overt way. It, it treats it more like a fairy tale, but in both cases, her family are basically at, the wholeness of her family is at threat from this sort of like evil, these evil forces, if you will, right, that are paralleled, and I don't know, I just love it. Um, so, oh yeah, I didn't give stars. Um, kind of six. 
yeah, I will. You know what? I'm going to make the ruling. I will not kick myself off my own show for breaking the rules and giving it six out of five. But it gets six out of five for me. Um, cause damn, these creatures are cool. Uh, so we're going to focus there. There's a lot of stuff happening here. Um, there's the toad King, which is really cool and interesting. Um, there are fairies. There's, uh, that sentient little root that becomes sentient, um, and loves to do things like help with pregnancies and dance under beds. Um, I'll do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's cute. I would, I would cuddle that little root thing. Um, We'd be friends. So there's that. But then, like, mostly for this episode, we're going to focus on two, both played wonderfully by Doug Jones. Uh, we're going to be talking about the fawn. And we're also going to be talking about, as we mentioned, uh, the pale man, which is an original creature that has, or entity that has a lot of symbolic meaning in Del Toro's, you know, world building. It's so awesome too to watch Doug Jones work in this film because he's this was I believe his third collaboration with Del Toro. He was in um, Mimic, and uh, he played something in Mimic, and then he was in Hellboy, and great in both, uh, great all the time really. But here it's cool because he gets to be two very different entities have such dramatically different look and feeling, even though both are kind of intimidating that it's just stellar. Um, weirdly. So I not, not weirdly cause it's me and I'm a nerd. Um, but I have two Nika figures in the office of fawn and the pale man nice. uh, to grace any episodes that we do because got to surround yourself with the best. <laughs> Do you feed the, the the fawn like little slivers of meat? On occasion, yeah. It's it's okay, cool. Exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, one time I accidentally got the sliver of meat off the pale man's table, and woo, that was a mess. I I was not thinking that day. So <laughs> it's interesting here because fawns have uh, mythological backing, but but Del Toro's doing kind of an original mythos around one here in, in this film. The fawn appears to Ophelia and is kind of this servant of her family before being incarnated in this world, right? She's, um, you know, so so he's there and has a, a bit of an intimidating presence despite being visibly deferent in part because he moves like a puppet. Um, so he has these uh, long sort of luxurious horns and a like kind of smaller protruded eyes with these spiralish shapes above them kind of just organically in its head or carved i can't tell and um it moves with this weird glitchy kind of clicky otherworldliness that is super interesting to me yeah uh, his movement almost has like a um, a stop motion quality to mm-hmm. it Maybe like as a nod to like the the monsters and and creatures of um of Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I I mean um, the Harryhausen monsters, this would fit right in in that terrain because a lot of his stuff was based in classical Greek like Greco Roman mythology, 
and that world, you know, your Medusas, your 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 giants, your Cyclopses, this and that and the other thing. And fawns, it's uh, interesting. They're kind of related to to the the wide family of of mythological entities in that era and area. Uh, that would be like fawns, satyrs, uh, centaurs. So you have these hybrid creatures that are partially human or humanoid and uh, partially hooved animals of some kind, right? Um, and they're often portrayed as being way more human than the fawn is here. But it's kind of interesting. Satyrs obviously are, are usually the um the the body of a horse with like often the torso of a person which is weird because then it kind of has two torsos but like i didn't design this nobody (laughs) asked me (laughs) um and very rarely the head of a horse and the body of a human again bit of an oversight fawns and satyrs both have two legs and one of them uh, satyrs have the legs of goats and some goat-like features and fawns have deer-like features, uh, legs, other attributes. But they're often kind of conflated in practice because people don't know they're hooved animals. Do your research, people making myths. Uh, yeah, I'm going to myth shame the ancient Greeks. Come on now. <laughs> you know, I would actually like to see a short story in the vein of, of like Homer's Odyssey or something, but like they're just traveling at high speed on a mountain pass and they just run over like a deer fawn (laughs) and they have Mm -hmm. to just like figure out what to do with with its body (laughs) (laughs) that'd be kind of great i would endorse that so the the fawn here kind of it has a very very otherworldly like humanoid up top design but it really doesn't look anything human other than just being humanoid in shape so here it's super cool um i love that it's part of an original mythos though yeah, I mean, it definitely does a really effortless job at its world building. I think that's one of the outside of the visuals and really strong storytelling. Um, you know, the world building is just so I mean, effortless is the only kind of word that I can think of. Oh, yeah. And also there there are um, it's worth noting, too, that it also presents three fairies that kind of help and guide Ophelia in certain instances. So it's also associated with fairies, which are often like fawns associated with forests and the natural world. So they're all kind of part of that terrain, I guess you could say. Uh, what do you guys think about about our, our lovely fawn here? When I first saw this, I wasn't sure if I could fully trust him. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be the case for, for fawns in general, where like, they're stewards of information or like they're appointed to different courts. So Mm. they're not necessarily of one allegiance or the other. They're just kind of like a neutral hired party Mm. in in a way Mm -hmm. while he largely helps Ophelia out. Like I feel like he could easily have been trying to lead her astray. I, I think some cautionary element, might have existed underneath the surface, especially when uh, she meets him for the first time. It's very unsettling, uh, especially for her. And mm-hmm. I think that it's um, it's something that could be interpreted that way, which is very fortunate that it goes the other direction. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is very Stranger Danger at first. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like how Del Toro purposely kind of plays with our, um, I guess, not expectations so much as our, um, you know, yeah, it is very ambiguous, like whether or not he's sinister or not. And, and you know, in that scene, uh, you know, like the, like the lighting, the um, like the tone, it definitely reads more um fantasy horror in that moment yeah which i think is purposeful in sort of uh misleading um or at least uh injecting some ambiguity into it yeah it's not clear how he um like you're both saying like how he's introduced in the world the presence is a little bit otherworldly it's a little bit glitchy it's um a little bit frightening and so it's not clear if like like you were saying from the drop andre it's, it's really not clear if he's trustworthy or not but i think part of that is to contribute towards there's supposed to be an ambiguity in this parallel narrative right it even ends on a note where there's you know you can have a meaningful debate how to interpret it and so the untrustworthy narratorness of the fawn is really in service to the greater story. Yeah, I can see that um, for sure. But I mean, again, Del Toro plays it so uh, smartly because um, you like to have that sort of misdirection, unease. I mean, um, it definitely makes it way more engaging, I think. It's it's interesting too, because, okay, so the, the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth, it's not we'll talk about later it's not a it's not pan that's just a translational thing it's actually just a fawn and it's not named we'll talk about but because fawns uh, are often confused with satyrs they, they're both woodland demigods from greco-roman mythology and it's kind of in this film del toro's take on that sort of thing um, typically, they both have uh, male human torsos from kind of like the hips on up, and they'll have animal legs of some kind, usually. Uh, fawns will have goat legs, cloven hooves, sometimes they'll have goat horns. Uh, you can see another adaptation of that in the, the Chronicles of Narnia films. You have uh, the fawn there with little goat um horn stubs and del toros are more evolved and it's a little less humanoid uh here and then satyrs are a different woodland demigod with typically a horse's hind legs and a horse's tail um but part of the confusion is at times it's sometimes it's sometimes been described as having goat legs just because uh mythology is messy when it comes from a lot of different sources over a thousand years or more uh and uh people just write stuff down they're like that sounds right i don't know uh you've seen the internet imagine that but over thousands of years um and so uh satyrs don't tend to have horns though um so basically like a two-legged version of a centaur a satyr and uh so so the fawn here is definitely um, more of an actual fawn fawn, although both are associated with the woods and both are associated with um, 
strong carnal impulses, sensuality, uh, and that sort of thing. We don't we don't know enough about the fawn here to know if that association tracks. But the 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 association with uncontrolled woodland territories is definitely consistent. Maybe the like his need to to eat like raw meat is like some representation of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe. Uh, that, like, that absolutely tracks to me. Yeah, because the, the fawn can't really get real horny in this movie because it's not really about that. <laughs> yeah, like that's off topic, man. <laughs> we don't know what he does in his off times. Though he's at work here the entire time. This is a private section of the labyrinth. <laughs> exactly. Like I'm just gonna lock the door here. Um, he's like only fans this account. Is a false hedge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly because because the trick is like uh i i think fawns are um if i recall right are uh see satyrs fall uh dionysus um so you know the god of wine and being pervy and orgies and all that lovely stuff um and uh fawns i believe derive from faunus which was a a, a native roman god and uh kind of associated with the greek pan um but yeah both both are kind of carnal uh types of beasties and the thing to remember here is that every moment we see pan in pan's labyrinth he is at work he's got his professional face on you know like his job is to get ophelia back to the kingdom we don't know what he does but he's not around all the time so sometimes you know he has like a good nine to five trying to get the girl back to the kingdom, you know, pointing the fairies and his little like uh, assistants, his little fairy uh, executive assistants that help him out and coordinate bookings and, you know, tell her where to find creepy guy in a, a little underground food dungeon, you know, mm-hmm. and then he clocks out, you know, puts on the bachelor, goes to the club. I don't know. You know, it's his business. <laughs> I am not answering phones today. <laughs> It's like, ah, oh, that Ophelia. God, I know this job pays well, but really, I feel like it's encroaching on my personal. <laughs> I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> uh, moving on for a bit, the um, Hail Man is an original creation, and is another one of, uh, along with the the Toad King, uh, is a sort of antagonistic mythological thing that she a barrier that she has to get through to accomplish one of her three tests. So she has this magic chalk that opens passages to other dimensions. And she um, has to go into the, this layer and she's warned no matter what you see, you know, don't, there's going to be things that tempt you. Don't touch them and move the F on, get in, Get out. It's like Ocean's Eleven, right? Actually, that whole sequence was the, the exact same. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> like, eyes on the prize only. Move on. So she... There was even, like, the uh, the contortionist part. That's remember? True. <laughs> That's true. Um, so anyway, we've established that the fawn is Danny Ocean. And uh, as played by Doug Jones. Playing... <laughs> played by George Clooney. Exactly. Played by Doug Jones playing George Clooney. Um, Doug Jones has been George Clooney this entire time. Uh, wow. first. He's a really good actor. Like all that food on the table is the actual volume of food eaten by Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> That's about right. Um, 
Okay, so to establish more context, so all these jokes make sense. Um, Ophelia, you know, uses the chalk. She goes down into this layer, and what she finds is there's this table laid out with all the tasty foods. It's like a craft table in heaven. It's just floated with the most delicious looking stuff ever. And it's abundant. And sitting at the head of it is this gaunt white terrifying entity that um uh very translucent white skin and um how do i put this there there's a lot of uh his skin he's very very thin but his his skin is stretched in folds like he gained 700 pounds and then lost all of it vastly too quickly. So he's got a, just covered in loose skin and he has whole, he has no eyes, um, like a narrow nose slit on his face. And then he has holes in the palms of his hands. And this is the most famous thing. And how he sees is by having eyeballs in them. And then he puts them up to his forehead. It's fucking bonkers. Um, to put it mildly. And so she has to sneak past him and the table. And do you remember? I, I don't remember what I'm spacing on, like what she has to get. Uh, I think it was a dagger. What was it? A dagger? Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, but so, so she has to retrieve this dagger and she has to sneak past this very tempting table that she's been warned not to touch. And she's a kid. So despite the fact that there's this creepy thing at the end of the table that's next to a pile of children's shoes, she ignores that and eats something off the table and wakes it up. Just bad tactics all around. You know what I mean? She was warned. And I think the, oh, you mentioned the shoes, and I think that imagery is probably a reference to maybe, um, you know, in the Holocaust Museum, they have that harrowing display of all the shoes um yeah and this would be around that time period this was set in um 44 yep. yeah um yeah so this is like a a civil war happening alongside holocaust so it's like yeah tragedy on top of tragedy yeah exactly like this wasn't um i mean it was it was uh franco with spain so they were fascists that were in alliance with what was going on in germany but it manifested in a civil war between competing forces so um, even though it didn't happen in Spain, it being controlled by fascist forces meant, you know, these evils are still something that the powers that be endorse, you know. It's also interesting, too, because in various tweets, because this, this is a film that has a lot of love and support. And Del Toro has said before that the, the pale man represents in some ways institutional evil. And then he's elsewhere said that it isn't an accident that it's pale and a man. Um, hmm. And so it's very much supposed to be a white man. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that imagery of absolutely full table of food is such a great representation of both gluttony, but also um, a colonial like territorization of mm-hmm. cultures that are not, the pale man's own that he not governs, but has taken over to rule himself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he, uh, he basically leeches things that are not his. 
It's uh so the actual I found the actual tweet. So in 2017, uh, Del Toro uh, said the pale man represents all institutional evil feeding on the helpless. It's not accidental that he is a pale, b a man. He's thriving now. So mm-hmm. it's it's really um, kind of in a sense a metaphor for things beyond, of course, fascism. But um, it's definitely a symbol of those sort of predatory institutions and ideologies and practices that consume things that don't belong to them and cause suffering, you know, mm-hmm. and that sit at a throne, you know, just causing evil, basically, for their own interests. Yeah, I think that the table that he sits at could easily be set with a bunch of different things. Like food is a, is a very great visual example, but it could have easily have been like filled with farming tools or mm-hmm. uh, books and knowledge, medicine, not mm-hmm. even to say like wealth, like bars of gold, you know, to tempt even the most yeah. like vulnerable of uh, low income temptations. Yeah, exactly. Cause like basically the pale man sits at the table and hoards abundance and parades it before you. And it's not his and he didn't make it, but um, he's willing to cause vast amounts of suffering to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting too. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm sure like, every aspect of the design is completely intentional. I don't know what the intent behind the, the eyes and the hands thing is other than it being creepy. But I do think it's interesting, too, that he is literally blind. Um, his face is literally blind to the things that he's doing, you know, um, because there's a lack of wisdom in these pre- in these predatory systems and behaviors. Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting with you said about like why the eyeballs in the um, like hands. Yeah. And I was kind of like thinking it might be sort of a so there's always kind of the depiction of like the crucifixion as like having mm-hmm. like nails through the hands uh-huh. which is actually not accurate i guess it was like you're more like your wrists but anyways yeah. like yeah in, in like artwork uh it would often be depicted as um you know, the wounds in the hands. And I don't know if mm-hmm. that was meant to be just sort of like a perverse sort of inverse of that. Um, yeah. Like that's maybe. just a wild theory, but that's my maybe and take on it. Uh, there's actually a, oh. a Japanese figure called the Tenome that um, has this exact design, which I'm sure Del Toro modeled after it. Um, it's linked to a story. I'm not sure if it has anything to do necessarily with his uh, repurposing it for this image of a territorial consumption and for the institutional evils. But mm. uh, it would be worth looking into to see if if there's any thematic uh, link there. Yeah, that's super fucking interesting. Um... See, uh, you know, folks at home, this, this is a lovely little side. If you're going to start your own show, you always got to make sure your co-hosts are all smart effing people. Because when you, despite knowing a lot of stuff, have no idea about a thing that will be very handy for an episode, you always have someone who's brilliant, who knows it, and all our co-hosts are brilliant, 
and all sorts of cool shit that comes in the episode that I didn't know ever. So thank you, gentlemen. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. No, I, I think that's the, the, the testament to how awesome this movie is. It doesn't like spin, uh, spin, yeah, spin food you. Yeah, that's a word. Spoon feed. <laughs> spoon um, food. I mean, you could it doesn't spin. spin food you. It, it, we don't even know what that is. It definitely doesn't do it. Um, <laughs> that's how you eat pasta with a spin. Well, yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, it doesn't um, spoon feed you everything. It um, there, I love things that are up for interpretation. You know, if it's done right, where it doesn't feel underwritten, it feels very intentional yes. in its ambiguity, and that's kind of the. I mean, definitely one of the the beautiful things about this movie is um, it gives you just enough to be engaged and engrossed in this world. But, you know, again, it's it leaves you threads that you can, like, talk about it and dissect. And I love that. Absolutely, because because there's um, there's so many layers to it that, you know, we we get a lot of the mythos of the fantasy realm. And it gives us a lot of talk about and its correspondence to the real world terrors. But like you're saying, we're not, we're not spink fed anything. We're, um, (laughs) we're, we're, we're also not spoon fed anything. It gives us enough that we can dig in and ask questions and mull it over without being so over explained that it's shallow. Yeah, you could say it's not spleened away. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. Um, but yeah, I just love it. So uh, let's like kind of pivot a little bit too, because um, we've been kind of casually talking about the meanings of things because these they're very symbolic entities and it's hard to talk about them without talking about that. But uh, is there... You know, we, we can more directly aim at the deep dive portion for a hot minute. Um, is there anything else that really kind of speaks to, to you guys about the film or its, its entities or its meanings and stuff like that? That the Pale Man has some kind of, there's there's some mirroring of um, specifically uh, like the moment where the Pale Man grabs the fairy out of the air and just like kind of rips its head off is exactly mm. that image of um, Saturn devouring his children. Oh, yeah. So I, it's it's like a little blink and you'll miss it moment, um, but definitely one worth mentioning, I think. Yeah, I'm glad you did, because that's such an iconic um, image in mythology and also pulls from the same mythological framework as you know fawns and satyrs coming from the greco-roman tradition so i think that i'm so glad you mentioned that yeah it's also one of those paintings that i i want to have it print like framed somewhere uh in in my abode Mm -hmm. but uh my wife is like i don't want to look at that (laughs) i don't (laughs) i don't blame either of you because one yeah it's it's an awesome mythological uh, moment two it's creepy as hell Mm mm-hmm really violent i mean like (laughs) to me like waking up in the morning and seeing that just like that just tells me like you know what seize the day (laughs) (laughs) seize the day seize the gods yum yum take a bite out of the fairy's (laughs) head and just get shit done 
Uh, I just remember those like Scruff McGruff commercials. Come take a bite out of crime. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Uh. Was there anything more um, to like the the Toad King, or like is is it just kind of like a flora fauna um, creature that Ophelia just has to kind of deal with and get the key from? Because I can't remember if there was like a another thing to that or not. Yeah, there was um. Uh, let me just look at my notes real quick. Um, she has to toss three magical stones into its mouth and retrieve a golden key from its guts. So, um, in a way, I feel like it's, um, it's definitely, you know, it's non-humanoid. It has the least sort of personality of, of some of the entities here, but it is a powerful thing that hoards. A, I mean, it's, it's no accident. It's a golden key, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it does hoard wealth and, um, and then the toad basically um, it's guts become uh, kind of vomited out and then the thing deflates, but it's paralleled by the fact that, that she finds out her, her mother is um, pregnant and she um, doesn't want her to be, I think. Her mother doesn't want to be. Oh, yeah, because it's with, um, uh, what's his name? Yeah. So it's interesting. I looked, I, I did some quick Googling and um, toads are traditionally negative symbols, but... Um, they are also, which is pretty interesting, thought of as guardians of treasures. So, you know, mm, that's mm-hmm. pretty interesting because that's, you know, the exact sort of thing that it represents. Um, yeah. Maybe like those three magic stones that are essentially just used as um, a way to get the toad to at least vomit up the key. But um, the, the way that it, does it kind of kills it in a way. So it's almost like you could read that as the, the symptoms that the mother is going through, like the morning sickness and, uh, Mm. and throwing up, but not wanting to have to go through it. So maybe it's like an externalization Mm -hmm. of wanting to terminate in a way. Like if I could, I would just, swallow these three magic stones and then throw up the fetus and like just be done with this fascist baby right 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 because like the you know the the her mother doesn't to get a little bit more into spoiler territory she doesn't want to have a baby with a stupid fucking fascist who does right but and it's making her ill you know in in a dangerous way but him being a fascist just wants progeny and doesn't care what happened to the mother or her daughter, who's not his daughter. Ophelia's not his daughter. Um, and so, you know, there's a desire to be rid of this tie to the jerk that's endangering the mother. And so in a way, the treasure, which normally a gold key would be like, sweet, a good thing. But in this particular case, it has to be retrieved from the Toad King at all costs in a way that it's kind of an abortion metaphor. Yeah, Ophelia is um, dealing with that real world uh, situation through this allegory. Like she Mm -hmm. might not have 
be absorbing it in that moment. But after the fact, maybe like in her world, after the credits roll, uh, she might think back on that and connect the dots in, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And so even that has symbolic meaning, despite not being a humanoid sort of entity, it might not have a lot of like overt personality, but it's a strong representation of a, um, of a challenge that she ha- that she has to overcome for the, the well-being of her and her mother. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe, and this might be a little bit simplistic, but I always kind of think of toads being really synonymous, synonymous with like fairy tales. I mean, again, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's probably a, a much deeper meaning to it than that, but um, I don't know. I feel like there's seems like a lot of like frogs or toads in like fairy tales. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. it's a very prominent tool of iconography. Like it works when you're talking about like gluttony in this case, or like mm-hmm. hoarding. Like toads are known to represent. Um, they're almost like a a very low level dragon, except they can only carry what they can eat. Uh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> they're kind of like little, like real life Kirby's, you know, like they're basically <laughs> like a mouth and like uh, a pocket full. They're like a po- like a, like a hopping pocket that can contain the shit that they eat. And that's literally all they are. Yeah. Uh, little hot pockets. <laughs> and you know what's weird like every single time i see this movie and from the first time i saw it in the theater uh like you know everyone reacted when when the toad threw up and like she's going through the guts trying to find the key and i'm just Mm -hmm. thinking like that looks like a really good uh enchilada (laughs) because there's like all the flies embedded in it and it actually looks like food which i was just like i actually got hungry when I was watching that, <laughs> and I always think that it looks like an enchilada. Hey, you know, to, um, you, <laughs> to be fair, though, you just had the reaction of so many French chefs. <laughs> so I just got like, a great ooh. idea for a recipe. Oh, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, I love that association and I endorse it. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's interesting that every single um, aspect of the creatures in this film serve uh metaphorically and mythologically where they are in the plot and what their function is and we're um i'm not going to belabor the point too much because i'm trying to book us a really cool guest for an episode on fairies uh a director who did a, a an irish horror film that i i love the hell out of but for the the fairies here um it's interesting because there's small little stick light servant entities and fairies are often portrayed in a lot of different ways. There's really complex mythology around them, but here they're, they're, they're less humanoid and more, um, they can alter their form a little bit, but they kind of look like, you know, it, it goes with us directly belonging with nature ethos of how all of the characters are interpreted. Yeah. Like, they're the most incognito of all the forms, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of interesting that um, Del Toro uses fairies in a lot of his movies. And um, a lot of times they are like pretty nasty creatures. Now, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, wasn't there, I know there was um, fairies in Hellboy 2. Um, 
was there another del toro movie with uh, I know he didn't direct this, but he produced the um, the remake of um... "Don't Be Afraid of the Dark." Yes, yeah, that one. Yeah, in that one, the fairies the, the, are designed to be a lot more um, menacing, chattering teeth. Um, you know, they'll uh, they're directly a threat. They're basically like aerial magical aerial piranhas, and how they interact with the folks. And here they have kind of two forms. They have like this little tiny humanoid form with like leaf like wings. And then they also will appear sometimes as these larger, like stick bug looking insects. All um, surprisingly voiced by David Hyde Pierce. That's interesting. No, it's true. It's true now. No, it's true. <laughs> Absolutely true. And that's interesting. It was a hundred percent factual. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I have had a one billion hour week and obviously I have lost my marbles. So, but yeah, so I think it's interesting. I don't want to go into fairies too much because like I said, we'll, we'll have an independent episode. But it is interesting too that when he, um, that he, in work that he has either directed or produced, they are pictured so divergently. I'm right now like looking up fairies in the Hellboy world because you have Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Those are, which... um, I think, yeah. the more like comically designed, but they they have like this really fun and like sinister design where like they have these tiny bodies, but their head is uh, a little bit larger. And mm-hmm. it's mostly just like mouth with sharp teeth. It almost looks like Mike Mignola designed those too. And I think he did. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They have like um, uh, comically large heads that are basically just like venues for, for sharp teeth mm-hmm. and little tiny humanoid torsos. Uh, but at the bottom, and they do have wings, but at the bottom they have like four legs um they just call them tooth fairies so uh it's a specific subtype of fairy but they're in hellboy 2 the golden army so he did it after pan's labyrinth and they have this like quadrupedal set of legs that you know each leg is basically comes to like a sharp bony point and so it's interesting that like he's he's got a lot of different types of fairy uh representation in films that he touches and uh these ones are creepy i really don't think that these ones would have helped ophelia very much yeah it's gonna be kind of interesting to see like his um take on pinocchio because i know that yeah that pretty famously has um a fairy in it so Mm -hmm. yeah um i mean that would be kind of amazing if we could get like a hellboy 2 fairy instead (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) i mean i doubt it but (laughs) Uh, I'd be here for it. Um, yes. <laughs> he just like helps Pinocchio out by chewing away the wood until he's a real boy. Um, <laughs> there you go. There. I've made the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my check, right? <laughs> Damn it. Dear Guillermo, can we hang out now? And also now Pinocchio knows what it means to have a pre-existing condition. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, man, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that he's making Pinocchio because it's such a weird and creepy story. And uh, it's like the most famous Italian folktale. And I really look forward to seeing his take on it because it is 
supposed to uh, kind of return thematically to dealing with issues of fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that whole original story is just absolutely wild. Yeah, I was going to say it's very dark. Like, I know that um, in one of the stories, I guess, like, the author kind of was sick of the um, creation. So he basically has, um, I think they, like, the townspeople hang Pinocchio. Oh, yeah. Um, Mm. I mean, I'm not even making that up. Like, that's, it's dark. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think in the books, um, like, he kills... um, Jiminy Cricket. Was he named Jiminy in in the original text? Oh, maybe not. Maybe that was. Maybe that's just a Disney thing. But anyways, he squashes it, I guess. Um, which is uh, again very dark and definitely not in the Disney movie. But it, again, uh, it's going to be really interesting. I hope. I really hope that um, his Pinocchio is a little bit more Pan's Labyrinth and a little less Disney. I think it's going to be because because I just looked up. Um, uh. Uh, an interview from Ron Perlman about the film and uh, his, his Pinocchio adaptation that's coming up. And his quote was, uh, Guillermo's Pinocchio set in Mussolini's Italy, which is a fascist backdrop. The conceit of the film is that Pinocchio is the perfect soldier because he's not human. So he doesn't ever question orders. He doesn't have fears. He's invulnerable. He's all the things a perfect soldier needs to be. So mm. it sounds like okay. it's, um, you know, set in fascist Italy, which makes sense as an Italian uh, folktale. But so so it, it will probably return to those themes because he hasn't really revisited them since Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, that's true. I think it's sadly a common thing with Guillermo del Toro where it's so hard to get his projects made. Um, like, I know he has like... You know, even somebody of his stature, like, has, like, a pile of, like, unproduced script mm-hmm. that, yeah. I guess, pretty famously, um, oh, gosh, now I'm like, yeah, it just it's the, the Mountains of Madness, right? God. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm still holding out hope for that. Me but, too. Like, I mean, after all this time, I don't really know how um, effective it's going to be had it been made you know, right when script final draft was delivered, you know, cause it's been in, in hell for such a long yeah. time. Yeah, it has. And then he uh, almost did a um, re-adaptation of creature from the black lagoon. And then that's, that's a famously cursed thing to readapt because I mean, you, you folks know on the show is our second episode ever. Uh, Mike, you were on that show. Um, yeah, that was my first, um, this was my first episode. You were one of our first guests, my friend. Um, and then I was like, get this man on the show permanently. He's amazing. God damn it. Um, and pictures of Spider-Man. He's a mess. I don't remember who he is anymore because of MCU shenanigans, but he's a menace. Um, but that's pretty interesting. But oh, I, all I wanted to say was that like, so it's, it's it's one of our very favorite classic horror films. It was the second one I ever did because I love it so much. But it's a notoriously cursed thing to readapt because John Carpenter was attached to an adaptation at a point. 
that oh, didn't wow. go anywhere. Del Toro was attached at one point. Obviously, he didn't go anywhere. And then he thought, fuck it, I'll do it myself. And he made For, a shape of water. Fuck it, I'll do it live. <laughs> I'll do yeah. it live. Um, no, I, I, yeah, that's, it's such a shame because I think that, I mean, um, I, I know at like one point um, they were going to do like a Gilman, but also like a female variant, which I thought mm. would be really cool. Mm-hmm. And I mean, again, that is like something that, Guillermo del Toro would absolutely nail. Like, totally. I know, I, I guess his Frankenstein is still happening. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I had forgotten about that. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if, cool. if there's ever something that he would absolutely 100 million percent crush, it would be, you know, his adaptation of, like, Frankenstein. Yeah, because he loves, he loves Frankenstein. As do I. Yeah, like uh, d- doesn't he have like um, a figure or two in like in his house, like his famous house? Yeah, I think so, so. In um, Bleak House, he has, I guess, at the um, like the first thing I think it's the first thing you see when you like walk in is like a huge Frankenstein, hmm. like um, on his like affixed to like one of the rafters or something. <laughs> but then he has a figure of Boris Karloff in the Frankenstein makeup with a cup of tea with oh, yeah, um, that set photo with, with yeah, with Jack <laughs> Pierce um, doing his makeup. And uh, that's cool. Yeah. He also has some, like he's a big fan of freaks, which is um, mm-hmm. not surprising um, and very misunderstood. And also if you see nightmare alley, there's some yeah. thematic continuity between those films. We should do that for the show. Hmm. Oh, for sure. Like, I I would love to delve into more more Del Toro. Um, yeah. I mean, we could do like, every one of his films. So I, I mean, like, even, you know, again, this was another movie that he didn't direct, but he produced, but it kind of has a, a Del Toro feeling, which is Splice, which I think is yeah. criminally underrated. I agree with completely. Um, oh, that reminds me. I, uh, the director for Splice, uh, Vincenzo Natale, is 100% down to do the show on Slice. I just need to fucking email him again. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to put this in my notes. I literally... And... uh, Frustrated with myself, folks at home. (laughs) I can cut this out if I aim to, but... uh, Man, just too many cool people to bring you. (laughs) I forgot. Yeah, he did... um... That uh, in the tall grass movie, but also Cube, which is like uh, it's an all timer for me. I mean, it's oh, not, there's no totally. monsters in it, but you know, like <laughs> it's no, such a fucking good like, movie. <laughs> it's like if Saw were interesting. <laughs> Ooh, well, yeah, it, it, it's like if Saw focused more on the horror aspect, like the real horror, rather than yes. sidelining to a cop drama, and then also f- yes. from that a, um, a soap ish uh saga uh-huh yes exactly yeah cube, yeah cube is great like i think that um yeah it, it's it's such a fantastic kind of minimalist uh horror movie i mean that's kind of perfect for somebody like making their um i'm assuming this was maybe like really early in his career i'm kind of looking right now um, yeah yeah it's cube like, his first feature film yeah it was like all just one set they just repurpose each room for each you know puzzle thing yeah 
it's a really clever idea because there's a mystery too of like why are they there what's the point what the shit mm-hmm. um, yeah and it's it's something that they also again it's sort of like um what was that famous um there's like a pretty famous twilight zone where they're kind of all trapped um yeah yep called um five characters in, in of search an of an, of an search, exit yeah, search of yeah which is yeah which is one of my favorite like one of my favorite twilight zone episodes it's a very good one i would love to ask him to just confirm if that was any kind of inspiration for uh cube Oh, that's a fantastic one. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I put it in my, my notes. Um, cause if I remember right, I, I spoke with him about, cause we had him on, um, for, uh, with Anthony Scott Burns for come true. And then, um, I mentioned how much I love splice. Uh, and he was so wonderful on the come true episode. He's such a great, smart gentleman. And, uh, if I remember right, he was absolutely down. But at the time, he was, uh, I believe he was a producer on, the, they did a Japanese adaptation of Cube. Oh, I would love to see that. Yeah, I think it just came out. Oh, yeah. Actually, I had been hearing about that. And then I didn't hear anything for a while. And I was like, oh, probably like pandemic related. Um, yeah, it came out stoppage. last year. Okay. Yep. Great. Yep. yep I yep. will check the fuck out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I, I don't. Um, yeah, so he was he was involved in, in some way in that. So I think it kept him busy. OK, good, um, good. That's good to hear. Yeah. And then uh, but now I should ask him again. But anyway, so he's he's great. He, um, and uh, I'm sure that's really fun. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just love this stuff. And I'm really glad that to, to kind of rein it in a little bit. Uh, that del toro is going to be going back to using monstrosities uh of of like interrogating the monstrosities of these like fascist ideologies and countries um because he does so so well and my two favorite del toro films are pan's labyrinth and devil's backbone where he does that so uh i'm really looking forward to it oh but also just not to like get too sidetracked but um natalie is also doing del toro's um cabinets of curiosity oh just to throw that out okay. There. okay i'm glad okay. you so that might be a good um mm-hmm. it's in post-production right now so you know we could maybe get them to to um sort of promote that as as like uh yes an extra kind of um incentive yeah absolutely that's brilliant um thank you for mentioning that mike yeah uh yeah folks at home will try and bring you some amazing new projects uh and i have a new to-do list but yeah i feel like we really got through a lot of the mythological aspects and the parallels and the politics implicit in it um i will uh yeah, it's just a great film. And honestly, I've watched it a, a dozen times or something and it doesn't really get old because it's just so otherworldly in the place that it takes you to as a viewer. Yeah, uh, again, just um, it's a nearly perfect movie. I mean, if not a perfect movie, it, it's something that just works on so many different levels. Like the fact that we you know, can have this like in-depth conversation, but still um, 
you know, have it left to your imagination and inter- interpretation is really great. Oh, um, one thing I was going to point out was, um, uh, of all things, um, in a movie phone video interview, like, you know, those, those ones that they did with like filmmakers, actors, where they just sit in front of a screen and um, random people just ask them questions mm, like, yeah. via text or whatever. Guillermo del Toro mentioned that actually when he was a kid, he he wasn't sure if this was lucid or not, but like he would either dream or imagine an actual like fawn coming to visit him like as a kid in his bedroom and he would talk to him and like that's where he I mean pulled this uh this character from where like he knew that it was the fun and he knew that he had to put it into his story to then connect to mm-hmm. Ophelia and I thought that was like just a really interesting thing to not only just like retain from uh, your endless supply of childhood memories and like whatever um that might have been tied to whether it be like a like a specific feeling or a memory that, that he had as a kid, but it, it was just like pretty fascinating to, so uh, cool. to hear that he just pulled that from his own childhood rather than uh, an aspect from a fairy tale that was like repurposed mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. You know, that's one of the interesting things too, about um, a lot of these filmmakers. Like I was, I was talking to the director of uh, you are not my mother the other day and, and she's an Irish director and she was telling me about how in Ireland, there's a lot of, despite the the harsh Catholicism upbringing that was kind of imposed upon the country, um, there's still a lot of throwbacks to earlier pagan traditions and beliefs about fairies and all these things. A lot of families have stories. Um, there's a lot of communities and, and countries and, and regions in the world that have these really strong everyday beliefs that there are these other realms that have all sorts of things that I can access ours. Right. And specifically there's a lot of people that have family members that have these stories about things, interacting with them, interacting with their families. And apparently that's fairly common in Ireland. And I, it's so interesting to me that like that Del Toro also pulled from like, even if it was just childhood imagination, like mm. his own experiential memories. I always think it's so interesting when directors do that. Cause it's not, uh, I feel like it's more common from directors outside the United States. Yeah. It's like they're embracing it, like an aspect of how they perceived reality as a child and not mm. pretending that they now understand what really happened and like disregarding the, the emotional connotations of mm-hmm. that, which is by and large the the biggest influence on on youth really is like an emotional connection or an emotional disconnection. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on because the thing is like you know e- even growing up in the states as uh, uh, we all have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong and making assumptions. Um, it's everybody has those types of experiences and childhood memories, right? But then you grow up and in the U.S. you're trained to like choke that down and be like, well, I was just a dumb child. Um, (laughs) The world is boring. Don't worry, folks. Let's ask no questions. Uh, And I just love that there are all these directors that are pulling from 
that terrain because childhood creativity is so powerful. And Del Toro puts children as the protagonist in his films all the time. Like, mm-hmm. probably for very similar reasons. And it adds a lot, I think. Yeah. Um, I can definitely kind of relate because growing up in like rural Pennsylvania, it was kind of weird because we have this sort of like mixture of like, um, I guess um, like German um, like uh, heritage in um, like um, Pennsylvania Dutch is like a, like uh, something that we kind of got from like the Germans that came over. And so you get a lot of their like folk stories and, Growing up uh, in my area, it was like kind of weird because there was something kind of eerily unsettling about being there at times, like being out in the, I mean, it's like very folk horror um, oriented, um, Mm -hmm. I'll just say. That's cool. I dig that. Yeah, like um, we've definitely had some like really interesting even just like stories passed down in our family that is kind of supernatural and in, in origins. So I can kind of rel- like not to be super vague, but I, I, you know, not, but also not to prattle on too long. Um, so no, I can totally like get where, you know, you can kind of fold in some of your like childhood experiences or your kind of unique way of seeing the world in this kind of magical mystical kind of way mm-hmm. uh i think that's cool because yeah i've i got stories too and not a lot of people admit that but i think it's fascinating <laughs> it kind of works with the ethos of the show where we um you know for the folks at home we're you know i've said this before on the show we're, we're not uh saying of course that all these things are real and correct and whatever however it's important to note that we are also not saying that they're fake uh we have uh an openness is the ethos of this show maybe they're true it's like our gin episode maybe gin are real i know someone that has like family stories of gin because that's a culture that they came from fantastic i would love gin to be real i would yeah. love all these things to be true like i want there to be fairies i would like there to be satyrs and fawns um and an ocean full of beasties uh and maybe there are damn it um so who knows? Yeah, I mean, it was like like really nothing to hear. Like my, it's really fascinating, especially especially with my like my, my grandparents of like stories that they would have about weird encounters or like um like I know my grandma she was like no nonsense like didn't like make stuff up and like she had a pretty harrowing supernatural encounter that she would tell us um mm-hmm. probably not sure why she would tell us kids that but um <laughs> no she did um so yeah i mean i it, it's like i've always sort of had like one foot into that sort of like what if realm of you know supernatural or whatever i love that maybe one of these days we can swap supernatural stories yeah, or yeah, maybe um, gonna... you can get to talk to uh, Del Toro, Mike, and like you can finally make that sequel, Mike's Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But um, um I, I do kind of have like a, a question that I don't know if it's 
going to be answered between the three of us. Cause, I mean, I don't have the answer because that's why I'm asking the question. But um, and this pertains to people who have been brought up um, fairly religiously, if not like um, sure. specifically of the Catholic religion. Because uh, so Del Toro cites his favorite filmmakers, like his biggest influences are Hitchcock and Buñuel, which make complete mm-hmm. sense looking at mm-hmm. his films. Um, and uh, he joked that he loves Hitchcock because he is fat, repressed, and Catholic, <laughs> and that he identifies with those. Uh, <laughs> so, but that that got me thinking: um, if fairy tales like these, uh, or the ones that Pan's Labyrinth pulls from, or Grimm's fairy tales, uh, do they resonate stronger with with people that have been re- raised religiously or are still religious? Like, is there like a feeling of like this inherent like Catholic guilt or original sin feeling. Is that more instrumental for people who consume their morals through these stories? I mean, I will say that like, I wasn't raised Catholic, but I was raised in like a pretty religious household. It wasn't, it wasn't like superly overzealously like religious, but like, you know, we, I feel like we we mostly went to church just to keep up appearances, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but um, like we weren't like hardcore into it. But um, yeah, I would say I definitely like and and kind of unfortunately I grew up in what actually kind of turned out to be pretty notoriously conservative um, like sect, um, which you know I won't bore you with. But yeah, I mean I think like you you definitely. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting because, like, I can't help but not view stuff and not at least a little bit carry around that baggage. Um, so, you know, when I think, like, see, like, some of these, like, we were talking about the, the, the table scene um, with the, um, the Pale Man. I mean, that, you know, to me kind of has, like, a little bit of, like, a ceremonial kind of um alter sort of feeling i don't know like i i guess um i mean it probably would be more impactful if i was raised catholic which i wasn't Mm -hmm. but i mean i guess i sort of see some of that um religious iconography um i don't know if that's necessarily intentional or something i'm bringing to it yeah And, and actually as you were saying that i was just remembering um from that pale man scene with the table before everything uh gets um, scary, you know, um, you could also read that as a, a commandment warning of like, you know, the thou shalt not steal thing, but like almost turned around because like the pale man, isn't someone who is deserving of that food necessarily. So you're not really Mm -hmm. stealing, but removed from a certain layer could be construed that way. Yeah. I mean, there's always that like element of like temptation or um, I mean, you could even go even deeper maybe and say like, you know, um, not eating is like spiritual fasting um, mm-hmm. with like denying yourself the food, which, you know, like not taking it from the table um, in a, like a overcoming your, your impulses, yeah. Yeah. if you will. Um. Yeah, I think so. I think it's for me, it's interesting because like, okay, so I grew up in a household that was, weren't Catholic, but were 
they were Christian folks. And then, but my mom was always reading into more, like she just kept reading and being interested in different spiritual traditions. So you're like not at a certain point went from like very um, uh, conventional to very unconventional. But I never really, I super tried to be Christian once and it did not really work out. Uh, it just didn't, I don't know. It didn't take, I never really bought like into original sin. Uh, so that's kind of literally the whole thing. Yeah. But I, yeah, like literally there's no Christianity without original sin. And I think that's fake. Uh, I know I am absolutely positive. That's fake. That is a subject mm-hmm. of an entirely different episode that we'll never probably do. Cause off topic. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting how like, uh, Oh, as Christianity progressed, it re- and 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 sort of murdered its way through different pagan territories and forcibly converted people of different faiths. Um, you have all these in different regions these cultural holdovers where you have like fairy beliefs in Ireland still, you know, among some folks. Or there's all sorts of things in the Americas that are callbacks to earlier traditions. And mythologies and uh for a period of time before uh when, when you had more wild space and less you know as we see it's civilized domination of these forests there was still some belief in different regions of these different types of beings that were kind of cultural leftovers that people still whispered about in the shadows you know even if Christian frameworks tried to impose this, no, no, no. All the interesting stuff is gone. There's just like a really bad angel and he's an evil mastermind and that's it. Uh, You still have all these like residual leftovers, but it still creates the intellectual context, even if it really distills it and simplifies it to believe that there are evils in the world and there's stuff you can't see that that's, can befall you. And so I can see that creating a, a, an intellectual, I guess what I'm trying to say is I can see that creating a, a, a space for a lot of people to still believe in magical things. But even though Christianity tried to suppress so much intellectual territory and impose Christianity universally, it didn't really take in a lot of regions of the world in, in that so clean a way. So there's a lot of space to to really believe in these more interesting sets of beings. Maybe it's like the the sheer volume of, of things that multiple different cultures like communally like either believed in, worshipped, or talked about as if they inhabited a space parallel to our own was mm-hmm. uh, too like overwhelming to exist alongside a singular uh, all powerful deity that is like neither here nor nor there really Mm. maybe it's something that just didn't uh jive canonically so the first reaction was the one that still we we see echoes of which is almost like uh an erasing or eradication yeah or attempt to do that yeah because i think like you know people this is very far afield (laughs) Yeah, well, no, I mean, uh, th- this is going in some interesting directions, and I- I'm actually able to tie this back into the movie. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, 
I'll, I'll let you do so one second. I just think it's so interesting too, because because people talk about how like, oh well, Christianity spread over these territories, because and and the the, the book that was handed down, the the Bible or the Catholic Catholic text text, because there's some differences there that are considered canonical, uh, were handed down because it was God directly choosing the best and most represent represented stuff. Like actually, fun fact, they were solidified by a bunch of political agreements over time between competing powers and they were spread by murder. That's true. Um, and so, and not like good, like there's no good justified murder by definition. Murder's bad, but that's literally what the term murder is. It's like unjustified killing. Uh, but that's literally like, and and then the, the subjugation of all these competing ideologies was literally the plan and it didn't happen because one's more true than the other. It happened because one was more effective at like murder. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can cut this out of the episode. I don't know. Well, yeah, it's like in a way using that, uh, the, the power of terminology and perspectives to, to spin that around. I was like, it's not murdering. If you are pleading your enemy to switch teams to a religion that, yes. that you are, uh, then trying to indoctrinate others. And then if they refuse after the, yep. the third time that you ask them or whatever rule set you set up, they're like, well, it was justified because they didn't want to be part of this new world. Yeah. Like they, they chose to die. I presented the options convert or die mm-hmm. and they didn't choose to convert. So, yeah. And th- this is where I, I think it, it works in the film too, because, um, there's nothing more powerful than like a fascist regime like Franco's in the forties to then have uh, an associated almost nationalistic uh, feeling of like religious obligation in a sense where if you are the same religion as Franco and you're not sure what to do about the political situation, you're pressured into thinking and feeling that because you worship the same um, the same God, essentially, uh, you need to be on this person's side and support mm-hmm. this person. Yeah. And, uh, his men coming into the village where Ophelia and his mom are living in, um, it, it's almost like there's a level of that army completely devoted to this one thing. Um, both seeing and not seeing the way that these people have set up themselves to live comfortably, or at least trying to in the face of this, um, mm-hmm. there is this sense of, um, th- these pagan beings that are influencing life in that immediate area. There is an almost indirect eradication of it, which is exactly what, those more prominent religions have attempted and succeeded and are continuing to succeed to do when something is unknown and overwhelming, which is exactly the situation of the film. Like you could even think that Ophelia's fascist stepfather knows, but he doesn't say anything about it because he knows that he will be taken out of his outfit just so Mm -hmm. quickly um, that he needs to eradicate everything on the peripherals of um, yeah. like Ophelia's attention. He could know everything about who Ophelia really is, 
but chooses not to say anything because he knows how it's going to be received from his superiors and his um his fascist uh, confidants. Yeah, absolutely. Like because because the trick with with fascism and any sort of like authoritarian ideologies and and institutions, practices, people is they try and eliminate it's not like they proceed in confidence like we're the best so we're just going to be ourselves and that'll shine through they know that any other competing power whatever is a threat to their control right yeah so they burn books they kill religious practitioners they destroy temples they destroy libraries they do anything like police any behavior that's not good party line bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so these, I, th- these practices of authoritarian control are the same, whether it's fascism, whether it's religious, theocratic, you know, murder, you know, parties, like whatever the fuck they call them. It varies in time and place. Yeah. Um, and the explanations are always rationalized. Like this is for your benefit, but it's not, it's for theirs. It's a literal eradication of history because it's too chaotic to be allowed to exist because it's uncontrollable. Yes, 100%. That is how I describe myself. <laughs> you are too chaotic to exist, Mike. Oh, man. If there's one thing I know about Mike, it's he's a, he's, he's an open sea of chaos. And well, yeah. You one, can't control me, sorry. Exactly. I don't try. I just, you know, buy a boat for when you drown the world in your chaos. Um, <laughs> love it uh god that to went to some really interesting and thoughtful places and, yeah I, uh, I thought it was worth asking and uh it, it was. turned out to be <laughs> it was and damn it that's why i love the show so much it takes turns that i don't anticipate sometimes because uh oh no it's just great to explore things and thank you both for that um i think of that we should uh, this is a really good place to wrap because I don't really know where uh, I feel like that's just a great place to end on. Hey, uh, folks, how can the wonderful folks at home find you? Uh, maybe Mike, since uh, Andre started the reviews off, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so you can find my book, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema on Amazon. And uh, on Twitter, um, I'm at Strange Cinema 65. And um, I'm also... If you're so inclined to check out Letterboxd, um, my username is Kubrick655321. Amazing. And uh, folks, I would uh, encourage you to check out his stuff. It's great, just like he's great on here. Uh, Andre, um, how can I find you? Uh, you can find me floating around on Twitter at Demoni Disco. Um, and I also have a Letterboxd. Uh, the name for that, where you can find me, is Hamburger Harry. I tend to log something at least once a day, if not. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, folks at home, uh, folks at home, sorry, we'll, we'll cut that space out. You can find me at uh, on Twitter. I'm, I'm very active at realjeffewing.com. Uh, you can find my writings through uh, Forbes. I'll do a lot of reviews and interviews there, or Slash Film. And uh, you, uh, I'm, I'm just about to wrap the final episode on i've been doing uh an after show on the apple tv plus show severance which has been really fun and uh you can check all those out through the hollywood critics association or on apple podcasts and we do our last one tomorrow it's a fun show 
uh, Severance is fun. So you can check that out. And otherwise, you can find me here. And you know that because you already did. So uh, thanks for stopping by and, and chatting monsters with us, you fellow humanoids from the deep dive. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 